Hello, and welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. My name is Julie Fafan Falzer, and I believe that curiosity is the key to creativity. Together with my super special co-host and my mom, Eileen Schubalzer, we ask questions of each other and our guests while discussing learning, the creative career path, finding balance, looking at art, setting goals, and why being creative matters. Our goal is for this podcast to stimulate your imagination. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? Good. Tomorrow's Mother's Day, and you and I are both mothers, so happy Mother's Day to both of us. You know, I posted this on Instagram, and I feel I feel odd that Mother's Day is about me, even though I know I have a baby, and he's almost a year and a half old, and I should have gotten through my head the idea that I'm a mother. But I think because he doesn't say mama, you know, it doesn't – I don't I, – when I think of mom, I think of you. I don't think of me, so – it's just an odd contradiction, isn't it? Well, we'll work on that. Well, anyway, speaking of odd contradictions, it's actually a great way to talk about our guests. So we're talking to Tina Walker today about why she needs to make art. And like many people, she lives a left brain, right brain life, and it's the balance that makes it work. So let's go ahead and talk to Tina. Our guest today is Tina Walker. Tina is a creator, hobbyist, photographer, and dog lover. She loves all things mixed media, including art journaling, assemblage, and bookmaking. Her project selection and medium choices are always changing, and you will frequently see her hosting online collaborations and challenges. She is a frequent contributor to various Stampington magazines, and you can find more of her art in her various in-person and online workshops. When she isn't creating, you will often find Tina perusing local antique stores looking for project inspiration or combining nature with art. So welcome, Tina. Thank you. Hello. How are you guys? I'm good. You know, the way that I found you is actually I have a, uh, a coaching client who was, I asked her to um, share some of her favorite artists with me and you were one of them and she was scandalized that I wasn't <laughs> intimately familiar with all of your work and I clearly realized that there was something wrong with me and I needed to fix that. So that's it. That's interesting. It is. So uh, for people who don't know your work, will you kind of give us a sense of like what you're known for, what your kind of style is that people are used to seeing from you? Um. So that's, well, first of all, before I get going, if you hear snoring in the background, that is like my puppy on my lap because it's the only <laughs> way I can keep him out of trouble right now. And he's a French bulldog and he is a snorer. So if it's you hear snoring, it is not me. Um, so you might hear that from time to time. But um, what am I known for? You know, that's that's actually a tough question. And I get asked that a lot. And I think the reason why I struggle with answering it is I feel like I do a little bit of everything and not a lot of one thing. Um, you know, I, I've been creative my whole life. I remember like from the early days, my earliest memories are going and painting pottery with my grandmother in Wisconsin. And like, I've just always wanted to make. So I think with that, I want to try everything. Um, you know, right now, I think a lot of what I do is a lot of art journaling. I do like to make pottery actually now. So I have my own kilns and I have my own, um, all of the, you know, very expensive supplies that go with pottery. I have all of that in my basement and garage. So 
I get bored really quick, so I do hop from one thing to another, but I'd say the phase that I'm in right now is really art journaling, pottery, and I do like to make my own journals and little mini books. So it's so interesting because I, so what you're talking a lot about is sort of the objects that you make, right? And I think in some sense, my question was more about across, because you do do a lot of stuff. I get that because I do a lot of stuff. Sort of across many mediums, do you think that you have a particular like style that comes through or subjects that are interesting? Um, So what I always think is interesting with that, um, style wise, my art journaling style is different than my pottery style and it's different than when I would do a lot of assemblage style meaning art journaling for me is always about really bright colors great patterns um, lots of layers I like to use stencils in my art journals and right now with my art journaling I do a lot of collaging and I tend to be drawn towards like the woman figure. So like my collage material is usually women. Um, There's just something about that that I find very empowering and and strong. But for like assemblage, my assemblage pieces were always very monotone in color, very vintagey, aged coloration, not bright at all. And I don't know why my brain works that way. Like I've tried to do the reverse and I can't do it. I've tried to do monochromatic art journal pages and I just can't do it. And I've tried to do colorful assemblages and I can't do it. So I don't know why my brain segments things the way it does. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that like assemblage is 3D because I feel like some of your pottery also sits in that more kind of natural colored space. Yeah, that that could be. Yeah, because my pottery is very um, natural in, in tone as well. So maybe that does have something to do with it. That's an interesting observation. Well, cause I really think as, as a, as a fellow dabbler who likes to experiment <laughs> with a lot of different things, I do find that, um, I just think of 3d objects differently somehow than I do of flat objects. And I don't know that that's always true, but I think it's sort of a natural divide for a lot of people. It's kind of like I express my art in one way, but I'm not sure I decorate my house in the same. I, You know, that's very valid because my house is full of a lot of old, antique, vintage things. And it is very um, monotone in color. My walls are all white. My furniture is all like dark brown and black. Um, and it there isn't... There's pops of color in here, but there's actually not a lot of color in my house. So that is very interesting. I've actually never thought of it that way. I think dress. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I wear all black all the time. Are you a color person or um I do wear a lot of black as well. That's kind of gr- black and gray are my two go-to color choices for clothing. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, uh, I went through a phase and I haven't done it since I've been working from home with COVID, but, um, you know, I'd go into work every day and my hair, you never knew what color it was. So 
I do like to experiment with color, um, but it, it is usually very outside of my normal facade that you would see. So um, I, that that's making me really ponder why, why I am the way I am. That's an interesting. I'm going to have to think about that. Deep and existential questions. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I do think if you think about most fashion designers, when they come out at the end of the show, they're usually wearing like a black t-shirt and a pair of jeans they're not dressed in the clothes that they've made in the art essentially right that they've made and I don't think that that's any different I mean I don't think when you go to a lot of like art openings sometimes artists are wearing things that resemble their work but you know I think you're allowed to not have to be your art or like completely soak in it yeah I think that's true so my my youngest son he always laughs at me because i i sometimes skirt on the edge of weird with my art and he he actually went to school to be a graphic designer um so he works in the art field as well but he 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 always jokes with me about this kind of skirting on the edge of weirdness like i'll do some weird paintings with you know very abnormal facial features almost picasso-esque in nature and he's like he's like mom i just don't understand why you do that because all your other stuff is pretty basic and normal so again i i think i have this weird thing that wants to come out of me every once in a while and every once in a while i let it go there but then i kind of pull it back a little bit and, you know, get back in my comfort zone. Well, who are your, some of the artists that you like? Are you a fan of sort of those Picasso faces? Do you have other artists who, uh, you know, whose work just inspires you? I am actually, um, if I, you know, were to look at, you know, artists, very, you know, globally well-known artists from years and years, years ago, Picasso is always one of my favorites, and especially the his Cubanism phase. Um, there's something that intrigues me about the unnatural, um, like structure that he would put into his paintings, and the unnatural uh, formation of them. Um, I am not. I am definitely not a realistic type of you know, I don't put that in my artwork at all. I am more drawn towards the unusual and the unrealistic. Um, so I think the artists that I tend to gravitate towards are that same way. Um, I also really like Klimt. I like his artwork a lot. Um, again, because I think it it it's on the verge of a little bit of realistic, but his body shapes are very extended and usually in very uh, unusual, um, poses. Mm. So I, I, I really do like that a lot. And you can't come up with a brighter color than gold. <laughs> yeah. I do like that though. I like, I like, it's so detailed. I am a very, um, I've always been drawn to very small detailed things. And so in high school, I actually, um, wanted to be a vet for many, many, many years from being a little girl, even through two years of college, that was my career goal. I wanted 
to be a vet. So all of my education to that point was very science driven. And at one point, I actually considered um, majoring in genetics. So I've always been fascinated with the smallest level of detail that you could go. I mean, genetics goes into things that are even unseeable because they're so small and minuscule. So I think also with Klimt, that's one reason why I'm really drawn to his work is the level of detail and the smallest little dot makes a difference. And, you know, a lot of my art journals, particularly, you know, when I do it, I get so obsessed about the smallest things that I know most people wouldn't even see, but I see it. Um, so I, I love detail. I love, you know, layering bits and having the smallest little piece peek out. Cause to me, that's what's intriguing because you want to know what's underneath. How big is your art journal? Does it tend to be small or is it a large journal? I tend to gravitate towards smaller journals. Um, I do have a large one, but I have been working on it now for three years. I just can't seem to fill it up. Every once in a while, I'll pull it out if I feel like I need a bigger space to get out what I need to get out. But I would say journals that are five by eight or smaller, preferably even a four by three size, are my wow. preferred size. Yeah, I just, there's something about the size of a journal you can hold in your palm of your hand. I love that. I mean, I've created journals even in a two by two size, and that makes me really, really happy. Wow. Is your pottery small also? It is actually, it's funny you say that. So, um, I've been taking pottery classes now for about two and a half years and the pottery teacher, she always laughs at me because I cannot throw a big pot for nothing. I can't do it. My brain can't comprehend it. My hands can't make a pot go large. And I do small. I even bought a really teeny pottery wheel that's maybe, I don't know, six inches by 10 inches in size. And I make pots that are, you know, the size of a quarter. Wow. And I, I love that. I think that's so fun and delicate and interesting. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my pots are very small. Have you ever been interested in um, like dollhouses or that kind of world of miniatures? Um, no, I, <laughs> I was a tomboy growing up. I really didn't have dolls. I had cars and all the, the boy type things. Um, I think I had one doll growing up, so I never really got into the dollhouses, but I have a, um, for all my little teeny pots that I've made, I do have a printer tray on my wall that has, you know, because the spots are perfect for those little teeny pots. Um, so I do collect those little things. Very cool. I've seen, I have to say, I've seen some very cool adult dollhouses um, and people who make like extraordinary, you know, miniature scenes that just are mind blowing in their level of detail. You know, it's just down to the very last thing. And, and I was thinking about there's actually at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, they have I'm trying to think what it's called. It's some kind of Dutch thing that was fairly normal to have, uh, which is a dollhouse that's in like a case. 
And when you open it up, like it, this was obviously done for some rich child, but like the level of detail in it is fascinating down to like the fringe on all the rugs and the tiny, you know, little corbels on all the little doorways. And it's just crazy. It seems like something you might be interested in seeing, if not doing, since you like detail so much. I'm almost afraid to check it out because I have a feeling I'd probably get super obsessed over it really quick. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, and I don't I don't need another I don't need another thing right now. <laughs> well, I was actually wondering about the antiques and how they might sort of play into your detail love. Do you are there particular kinds of antiques that you go hunting for? Um so yeah, I look for again kind of weird things. Um I I have taught in the past a uh workshop called random treasures where I incorporate things that I find at antique stores into little books. So things you wouldn't normally think about putting in a book. So just trying to come to mind of things that I've included are, uh, the, and I don't know what the, uh, technical term is for this cause I'm not a wind musical instrument person, but the, the, metal reed I guess okay. that you would have in a music instrument um one day there was a whole bag of I don't know a hundred or so of them and there were you know two inches in length and maybe a quarter of an inch wide and I was like "Ooh, that's kind of cool so I grabbed that you know then I start thinking of ways to incorporate that onto a page um I have a whole like bag of old cattle, metal cattle tags with really bright, bold numbers on them. Like anything like that, that you wouldn't normally come think about putting in a book. I love to buy them and figure out ways how to, how to put them in books. So when I do antique, I'm always looking for things like that, that I could somehow incorporate into a book. That's interesting. They're not antique, but you could probably find some things in hardware stores that are interesting. Oh, yeah. Lowe's could be a very dangerous thing with, <laughs> you know, nuts and bolts and, uh, yeah, yeah, you, I, I could spend hours walking around Lowe's, not from like a construction perspective, but more from an art perspective. Yeah, I just like looking for those untraditional things to use in art um, just because I think that's what makes it interesting and, you know, experimenting with it and, and combining it with materials that you normally would use in art. I, I, and when I was really doing a lot of assemblage, that was, you know, one thing I would do a lot. I would use that, those antique findings and incorporate it with the art, the, the paint, the ink, the whatever um, and you create really fun things doing that. Plus, I also feel by doing that, you're somehow taking that very old item and extending its life. You know, in an antique store, who knows who would buy it? I mean, I always get asked when I'm checking out, what are you going to do with this stuff? And I tell them and their eyes get really big and they look at me and they kind of go, oh, OK. <laughs> um, but I feel like you're also given an extension of a life. By incorporating in an art piece, you know, assuming that art piece is going to be around for a little bit of, you know, of time. So I know you have an Etsy shop where you also sell some antique things that you find. That's correct. So I actually just started that last um, November. 
And it initially started with product that I was designing. So washi tape and tissue paper and fabric and um, little journal books that you could use for collaging. And then from that, of course, the ephemera that I find on these journeys to antique stores, because I live in Pennsylvania and they are so abundant. Within 30 minutes of me, there must be 20, 25 really good antique stores. So I'm in like antique Mecca here. Um, so there is always a lot of ephemera. There's a lot of old railroad you know, tickets and uh, vintage papers and photographs and things like that. So I did put a lot of that in my Etsy store. Um, but I do work a full-time job. So trying to do that on top of art, on top of keeping an Etsy store up to date um, has been a little challenging. So I am trying to dial back a little bit on the Etsy store and, and uh, keep it more of my artist designed product and a little bit less of the ephemera just because it was, it's, it's just a lot for me to handle right now. So, um, yeah, a lot of the antique findings ended up in that shop. So let's talk about the products that you designed. Let's, uh, what was that process where, you know, how did you decide that you were going to do it and how did you go about it? Um, so I, I am really good friends with Dee Dee Catron and, uh, her and I have known each other for many, many years. Um, we teach a workshop together called Mad Matter, where we take natural materials, things that you might find in your backyard or things you might find in a grocery store and how to dye fabrics, trims, yarns, wood, whatever. And then we create three books in that workshop. So as part of just, you know, always talking about the workshop and talking about, you know, what, what can we do next? Um, she was doing some design work for um, another party, some washi tape, and she, her and I were talking about it. And I was like, oh, that could be kind of fun. Let you know, because I am not a digital designer at all. I, my son always yells at me because he wants to teach me because he is and I'm not. And I'm like, I'm, I'm too old to learn that right now. So um, she helped me with the first grouping of Washi. And it was really based on my art journal pages. I took snippets of my art journal pages and turned it into Washi. And it kind of grew from there. Um, and we found, um, so what I do for my day job is I work for a major, uh, footwear retailer and I am the director of their international trade department. So I am used to working with a lot of factories overseas and, you know, just how international business works. So I contacted some companies that manufactured washi and kind of went from there. So I've had uh, three different groups of washi, and a lot of it was based off of art journal pages. I took um, snippets from some of my eco-dyed fabrics and papers to turn that into washi. Um, and it's been really fun to kind of do that piece of the business and then actually use that product in my journals. And then the tissue paper, um, for my love of antiques, I've just taken very old vintage photographs and 
uh, ephemera pieces that I could find and turn that into tissue paper. And it was kind of the same process, just searching and looking for companies that could produce tissue paper and, and went from there. So I have three different designs of tissue paper. Um, I've done uh, wax seal stamps with um, some of my carved stamped images. I've turned it into wax seal designs. Um, I've done big metal paper clips with the same. I've taken my carved stamps and turned those into paper clips. Um, so it's kind of the same process with all of them. I get really inspired about something that I have been creating and turn it into something that could be used, you know, across the mass. And so, it's been, it's been really fun. So I have two questions. One yep. of which is, have you ever been burned by a manufacturer? I have been lucky so far and have not. But That's, I know Dee Dee and I talk about that and we know it's, it's scary. Gonna happen. It is very scary, especially when, you know, you're working with factories, um, you know, in Asia that you've not ever visited. You don't really know them. Um, it is a little scary. So, you know, the way we approached it just from a pure business perspective is let's start small. Let's play small order so if we happen to get burned you know the dollar dollar impact to that is not you know huge mm -hmm. um but you know as your confidence builds you get a little more you know confident in in the order size and the amount you you spend so i you know you have to do your diligence you have to vet the companies as best you can um but at some point you kind of have to take the risk and go with it so another question I have about it is I've always heard that when you order from Asia, you have to order enormous quantities and, you know, like a pallet or more of the product in order for them to be willing to manufacture. Have you found that to be true? Generally, I would say yes. Um, but we have been able to find factories that have lower minimum order quantities um, which has definitely helped because I, I can't sell a pallet's worth. I'm, I'm one person and I want to keep the uh, designs fresh. You know, I, I, the main goal behind this is these are limited editions. So, you know, we want to order a small quantity and make them limited. So when they're gone, then we get a new design just to keep it fresh and exciting for everybody. Um, so we have been able to find some manufacturers that will do much smaller minimum order to quantities for that. But obviously the price is higher. That's always going to be the trade-off, right? Yep. Yeah. Always, always. So one of the things I think that you do that is so brilliant is you've been doing a series and I'm probably going to get the name wrong. Uh, I think it's called like seven ways or seven something. And you yep. basically show like over a week each day, you show a different idea on how to use one of your products. Yes. It was called seven ways. Um, so I took all of my uh, artist design products, because um, I also forgot I did rub-ons as well, um, and created a short, less than a minute video, obviously it was sped up, on how to use uh, the product. And I actually had so much fun doing that. Um, you know, with washi tape and tissue paper, it was obviously a little bit easier because 
you know, there are so many uses for that that are already out there. But as I started going through some of these products, like the big metal paper clips, and then I also uh, put my designs on woven labels because I do love fabric. Trying to think of seven ways to use those items different than the other. It started it started stretching my creativity, but I really had fun doing that. And I would sit down on a Sunday night and I would start writing down my thoughts for the week and how to, you know, do something really short and sweet. Um, I did get a lot of really great feedback from that too. Um, it was really fun to do. I think it's a that's a great tip to give somebody that anybody can do with their supplies and I think really does stretch your brain. You know, what are seven things you can do with acrylic paint? And you probably think, well, I use acrylic paint all the time, but what are seven different things, you know, not yep. just painting that you can do with it? And I think, you know, it's always exciting to me when people push their supplies further. I mean, one of the reasons I think someone like uh, Tim Holtz is so very popular is because he shows you how you can use an ink pad to do 47 things. <laughs> that is that is so true. Um, you know, for me personally, when I create, if I have my desk full of supplies, my brain shuts down because it's it's too much. It's too overwhelming. And I don't even know where to start. But with, for example, with the seven ways where I was very hyper-focused on one thing, I get more creative that way because my brain goes into overdrive about how to use it in a different way where if I had so many things on my desk, I wouldn't even know where to start. So I tend to be more creative when I have less. So if someone were to hand me five items and say, make something with this, I think I would be more creative doing that than being able to walk into my art studio with a huge assortment of things to make and go make something. This echoes something Julie has said, which is when she is forced to work with a limited group of supplies, she actually finds herself being incredibly creative and stimulated. Yeah, I, I probably right. Yeah. I, I definitely, I have been that way a long time. Um, another thing that I have been thinking of, I just haven't really had a chance to launch it yet. Um, it's been a little crazy with work and everything. Um, I wanted to start a series kind of in that same vein called This or That, where I allow my friends and followers to, you know, I would share one day, um, this blue paint or this blue ink, for example, have them tell me which one they want me to use and then do that for, you know, a, a few days, maybe even a week. I don't know. I haven't really thought out the details for this. I'm, I'm totally winging it right now. Um, and then make something with what people selected. I, I, things like that just make me very excited when I make things. Um, because it's a limited supply list and I didn't have to think about what to use. Someone just told me what to use and then I can figure out how to use it. So I also love challenges that involve limited supplies or being forced to use certain things because it makes my brain 
go. And I think it's part of the reason, I don't know if this is true for you, Tina, also, but it, this is one of the things that I think why I'm a dabbler is for me, like all art making is problem solving. What I'm really interested in doing when I sit down to make something is solve the problem of the blank white page, solve the problem of the ugly thing that I've just made that I need to fix, solve the problem of why it isn't balanced or, you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. having not all the supplies or having different supplies than I normally use or being forced to use a certain thing, I think feeds directly into that problem solving mentality because you're like, okay, it's MacGyver time. Let's go. Let's make, you know, something amazing out of what we have in front of us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's actually sort of like having to make dinner out of what's in the refrigerator. Yes. <laughs> that is yeah. magic refrigerator meal. To some things. You don't really have the same range of choices and there's kind of an exciting challenge when you come up with something edible. Well, this yeah. is also totally related to this. There's a clothing challenge online that I have wanted to do for a really long time, but I have to like force myself to buckle down and really think about it. And I'm not sure I have the brain power at the moment, but it's called the 10 by 10 challenge. And the idea is that for 10 days, you, you wear the same 10 items essentially and you can combine them in different ways, you know. So you might have like three shirts and three bottoms and two pairs of shoes. What am I up to? Eight. Uh, you know, and then like a, a, a sweater and a, a scarf or something like that. And you have to find some interesting ways obviously to combine them to dress yourself. And so I again feel like that's kind of a fun problem solving thing to have. And certainly as someone who has packed my clothes in a suitcase for many trips, I'm sure that I could make a go of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, what's your studio like? What's my studio like? So um, I have a room that I believe in the house that I'm in was or is the office or the den. So that is my studio, but um, my studio really becomes whatever room I tend to be in. So my kitchen, um, Center Island right now actually has a bunch of uh, junk journal supplies and soft pastels because I'm trying to push myself to use material I haven't used in the past. So that's all over my kitchen. And then in my dining room, I have pottery supplies. Um, I've got art stuff stuck in every closet in my house. Um, it's in every room. I have one room um, is my photography area when I want to take good pictures of artwork and things like that. So my main art studio um, is that office space, but um, it it is very organized. I have to be organized, at least when my supplies are put away. So I have almost floor to ceiling from the, uh, from the container store. They have these really awesome storage solutions where you can customize the width and the height. And then even the size of the drawer that goes in it. And then they even have... Uh, plastic inserts that you can put in the drawer that contain smaller elements. So that's great for all of these little findings that I find when I go antiquing. So my, my studio is full of alpha drawers from the container store. That's what I use. I love them. Um, so I have two entire walls full of those. 
And even ones that hold all of my fabric, I had to buy more because my fabric was getting out of control. And then I have two Ikea desks where I work on, but um, my since I have a puppy, I haven't actually been in that room very much. We're kind of contained in the kitchen right now because he gets into everything. So that's why my kitchen island has become my my annex for my studio right now because I can work in the kitchen while he's in here with me. It's just like having a baby. I was just <laughs> going to say, it's the toddler. Yeah, I've got ga baby gates actually all over the place um, just to keep him in here with me. So, Tina, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously you have a day job and it sounds like it's a very serious and time demanding day job. Um, what kind of advice do you have for people who are struggling with the whole like working a day job, but finding time to, you know, make art and stuff? Do you have some tips? Um, so, I mean, my kids are grown, so that's one advantage I have, right? So I don't, I don't have the, the responsibility or the distraction of, you know, having to take care of them here. Um, so I, it's just me, which gives me a lot more luxury. But when they were younger, you know, I would still try to create. And I think, you know, my tips would be number one, don't stress yourself out. If you only have five minutes, then take those five minutes. You know, I try even now, if it's literally nothing more than putting a coat of gesso down on a piece of paper, there's something about doing that that kind of resets my brain that I, I physically need. Um, if I don't do that, then I get really stressed out in my work because I feel like I haven't been able to reset myself. So I would say if you only have five minutes, do five minutes. You know, the other thing that I did a lot when my kids were younger, um, make time, you know, to get away if it's for a, a weekend, if possible. And I know this isn't possible for everybody, but if you have time to get away and obviously COVID complicates things right now, but, um, I would try to go away for a weekend retreats and things like that. And that really helped with resetting myself and, um, you know, from a, a physical well-being, a mental well-being, just being able to be me and be um, who I wanted to be in my art without, you know, my kids wanting something or, um, you know, my partner wanting something or, you know, whatever. It's just was really taking time for myself. So, I guess what I could say is, you know, if you have five minutes, try to try to do five minutes. Um, if you have the ability to get away, um, you know, I guess even if it's the ability to get away in another room, um, you know, do that. But I, you know, I physically have to do it. I get very stressed out if I can't reset myself. It's so interesting because you've said several times this idea of resetting yourself. And I think that's such an interesting way of putting it. I mean, a lot of people, I think, go to art for wellness, for therapy, for, you know, just feeling good. And I think it's such a lovely way of putting it that what you're doing when you make art is you're resetting yourself. It's like you're, again, finding who you are. When did you kind of figure out that that's what art did for you? Um, it became very evident to me um, 
So I've, with my various jobs, I've moved all over the place in the U.S. And this is my second go around here in Pennsylvania. But before I lived here, I lived in Utah and Salt Lake City for five years. And living out there, um, first of all, it really actually invigorated me from a creative perspective because, you know, at that point, at least, Salt Lake City was the scrapbook capital of the world. And I was hard and heavy on scrapbooking. Um, I did that for a few years um, and and really just embraced it. But then I was going through some personal things there, um, both from a business standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, and I felt the only place I could actually retreat and be who I wanted to be without you know, work telling me I had to be a certain way and my relationship telling me I had to be a certain way was my art. And I found myself retreating to it more and more because it was the only way to release all of these feelings that I couldn't get out of me was to do art. And it actually became almost obsessive because there was so much going on in my personal life I, I couldn't release it any other way besides art. Um, so when I left Utah and moved here, um, because it kind of was saving me out there, so it just kept going and has become, you know, just a basic part of who I am. And, you know, I, I we had a conversation this week at work where I feel like my balance is getting a little bit off right now because it's been so busy with work where I haven't been able to spend as much time in the art and they both suffer whenever it gets out of balance. Um, so we were talking about how to start segmenting our daily workload to be able to do more of those things that we find enjoyment with. So I'm, I've tried to start to say no to doing some projects because it's very hard to do that because you want to start doing everything, but, you know, say no, because I just don't have the bandwidth to handle it anymore because I really do need to start getting back into my studio, even if it's for that five, 10 minutes a day. So I can reset myself because I am starting to feel a little off balance. I read um, an interesting quote this week that that made me think of, which was it's I'm going to totally mess it up here, but it's the gist of it was something about like when you say yes to things, you're actually saying no to all kinds of things you might want to do. And when you say no to offers and opportunities, you're actually saying yes to choices that you want to make. I would agree with that 100 percent. Um, because, and again, you know, I, I talk to my friend Didi quite a lot and we have this conversation, um, because I started saying yes to too many things and I wasn't doing anything that I was actually really happy with. So I, I believe that quote entirely. So, you know, it's just, it actually felt really good to say, no, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I can't do this right now. You know, I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things I think I've seen a lot of people talking about, maybe because of the pandemic, is about boundaries and about understanding healthy boundaries and that it's okay and we all need to do it. 
I, yes. So I've been working from home since last March, um, which, you know, has been nice because the company I worked for takes health and safety of their employees first and foremost, which is fantastic. Um, and I actually didn't think I would like working from home, but I do, but my kitchen table is my work desk. And so where I'm sitting actually right now on my personal computer right next to me is my work computer. So every waking moment I'm in my house, I walk past my work. So that is much different than visually mm -hmm. seeing my office. And I could leave when I had to go into the office every day. So boundaries are entirely important. And we've been working from home for a year and a half and I still don't have it figured out. Well, I'm sure also because you work in international trade, like you're dealing with people not on the same time zone. So that makes the boundaries of work even more complicated when you're at home. It does because there are many nights where I'm on the phone because we, I have a couple of team members that work in our Hong Kong office. So I'm, you know, up late talking to them because it's their morning and same with our Australia division. So um, yes, my days become very long. Um, they start early, they end late. Um, so there is no pure definition and boundary of what is work and what is personal. But, you know, I don't, I don't think the, this, in, this situation with COVID, I don't think is, especially from, you know, a business perspective is really going to go away anytime soon. So I really have to figure out those boundaries for my sanity because my job will suffer, my my health and my personal well-being will suffer. So setting boundaries is very important. Mom, I feel a lot like of articles. Sorry. I was going to say you actually have always had pretty good boundaries. Speaking of someone who's bounced I off had those to boundaries. Learn to do it, but I what I've discovered is even if you feel guilty about saying no, they nobody else knows that unless you convey that and you can you can get better at doing it so that it's almost as if practicing saying no leads you to be able to comfortably say no. I, I was just going to say that I've read a lot of articles that, that people who work at home during the pandemic ha find they're working more hours than they did in the office and that what they have to do is they have to set certain rituals which mark the end of the work day. Um, and then just do them and make that psychic break because otherwise there is no end to it. Even if you're not working internationally, also you set up expectations in other people if you're responding all the time. So instead of that, you just have certain times of day or days of the week or whatever, when you don't respond to emails, for example, and so people stop expecting that you're available 24-7. It's hard, but it's it's within you often. Somebody once that. said to me that what, when you say no to something, don't feel like you need to tell people why. Exactly. Because that's where people get into like the guilt and complicated and da-da-da-da. And instead it's like, you know, can you do this? You just say no. Period. Yeah. And don't say why. I'm and so it's sorry, hard. but I can't. It's yeah. hard. Well, well the hard, other but you can practice and it gets easier, I can yeah. guarantee you. Well, and I think the other thing is too, because in the last couple of weeks, I've said no actually to a couple of art things. Um, and the response I actually got back was, oh, that that's fine. That's okay. So I was, I think I had this expectation of myself that I was going to let the other person down, but it wasn't that. So it was totally a self 
self-inflicted feeling. Um, and it was, well, we can, we can, you know, do this later when you have a little more time. And here I thought I was going to disappoint everybody, myself, the other person, and this wouldn't even happen. But the response I got was very positive and it was, oh yeah, no, that's fine. I totally understand. Let's just, you know, plan on doing this, you know, at some point in the next nine months instead of in the next month. So and yeah. also people are asking you because they like you and want you. And so if you say like, no, I never want to do this, then that's fine. You've been clear about it. But if you say, I don't have the bandwidth now, then they say, I will loop back around to you, you know? Yeah. And I think like that's totally something to keep in mind, which is you're not saying no forever to something necessarily. You may just be saying no at this moment. I have a, I had a friend, unfortunately she passed away. I see I have, I had, I still have trouble with it, but, um, she was very religious. And so she used to say things, I am not religious at all. But one of the things she used to say is like, you know, when something happens and you're like disappointed, don't worry. Like there's, you know, God is, you know, creating another opportunity later for you. And she had all these examples. And I obviously don't believe in the religious aspects of that. But I do think it was interesting. Like she had really wanted this one apartment and then she had lost it. And then like six months later, she got offered like a way better like apartment of her dreams. And she was like, see, if I had taken that other apartment, then I wouldn't have been able to get this one. And I think, you know, obviously our brains try to make uh, lemonade out of lemons as well. But I do also think that sometimes when something doesn't turn out the way you want or you have to turn something down, there is a bigger or better opportunity somewhere down the line. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Can I ask you, Tina, if we met at a at a an apocryphal cocktail party and I said, I asked you that horrible question, what do you do? What would your response be? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I probably wouldn't be at the cocktail party because I don't like things like that. <laughs> well, and partly it's because of these horrible questions. Oh my god! To define yourself, and you yeah. know, yeah, I'm I'm such an introvert when it comes to things like that. I just get very uncomfortable. But if I was in a situation like that, um, what do I do? Um, so, you know, my first response, if it was a work related type of function, when I try to explain what I do for work, I usually get very blank looks because it's a very niche, very, uh, specific type of job, um, that either people have no idea what I'm saying or they get very intrigued. So I usually start off with, I, I work with factories overseas to get product from the foreign location to your store. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. Um, I work with government agencies to make sure we're complying with all the rules and regulations. So, you know, usually when someone, if they know me and they see what I do for a living versus my art, they immediately look at me and go, how do you do both of those? Because my job requires me to be very, very detailed, very organized, very um, black and white where art is not. So they struggle with how I can kind of flip from one to the other. And I think actually they complement each other. Um, but Both sides I, of your brain are working. 
to they totally work. Um, and I don't have to think about how to switch one off and switch one on. Um, but yeah, my work is one of those, like, I even think my boss sometimes doesn't actually know everything that we do. Um, but I, so I'm a licensed customs broker, um, which is a test that you have to take that is similar to like a CPA exam to be a certified public accountant. But the exam rate, the passing rate is like usually about 20%. So it's a very hard test to take but you have to understand all the U.S. customs rules and regulations. So um, a big part of my job is knowing all the rules and regulations for importing and exporting product all over the world. Well, you must have had a very bumpy ride for the last few years with all the tariffs and it, everything it else. Is, it has been crazy. I have done this job for almost 40 years, and I have never seen anything like the last... 12 to 18 months ever Craziness. it's a little crazy yeah craziness well that's a whole other podcast yeah that and is what i was gonna get to was so you don't introduce yourself to strangers as i'm an artist i don't um unless we're in an art type of setting i'd um, say you're in a totally neutral setting you would never occur to you to be start with the art part I don't. And, you know, this is something that I think makes me a little different and unique because I don't do art full time. So I guess in my brain, I don't consider myself if someone asks what I do, what I do, I don't consider myself an artist in that way because I don't that isn't my my livelihood, meaning I don't make a majority of my income from that. Um, so yeah, I would gravitate towards what I do as a career because I, I don't do art full time. You know, it's interesting because I think that this gets back to the whole, like, what do you do question as like a bad question? Because I think the question that people should ask when they're trying to get to know people is what's something that you love? So that comes up um, you know, in work settings, particularly when we, you know, do these group activities of, you know, tell us something that nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And always my go-to for that is art, um, being a published artist. And of course I always get, wow, we didn't know that about you. That's really cool that, you know, mm -hmm. that's kind of neat. But then, you know, I think the very common misconception when you say you're an artist is, well, what kind of painting do you do? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't really paint. I do mixed media. Well, what's mixed media? So then it leads into this whole conversation about that. But I usually do use the art as, you know, tell me something interesting about you that most people don't know about. I think that people do have a single idea of what an artist is and it's someone in a beret with a paintbrush on a canvas. <laughs> exactly. And it's also the idea that you sell your work through a gallery, you're slightly insane, you know what I mean? Uh, all those things are usually what people have in their mind. But I'm a great believer in the idea that, you know, uh, people have one story in their mind about people. Like if somebody heard just what your day job is, they might have one idea of what kind of person you are. And that doesn't define you. You know, 
the same way that like, uh, you know, people might have an idea about like someone who's been divorced twice of what they must be like because of that. But none of that could be true. And I think part of the reason that we need to talk to strangers and part of the reason that we need to share our whole selves and all the parts of our stories is because we need to change people's assumptions and to say like, you think you know these things, but you don't. And it goes back to a really succinctly well put um, story that I heard on the Moth podcast ages ago from an author who said she's from Africa and she came to school in the U.S. and um, these she's from Nigeria and these two girls uh, who were her roommates were saying like this is a stove this is where we cook food and she was like I'm sorry do you think that all Nigerians are like around a campfire you know and then they said to her oh you speak English so well and she's like English is the official language of Nigeria you know I've been speaking English as long as you have and I think Again, what she figured out and the reason she became a novelist is because she was like, people have one idea when they hear something about who you are. And she wanted to create characters and people that were more complicated and interesting than that. Yeah. So now you've made me, I'm going to have to do some reflecting today. This conversation has definitely <laughs> made me start like thinking about things of myself, which is good because I... I think too much sometimes, but I love thinking about stuff like that. So I'm going to have to do some reflecting this weekend. Oh, yeah. This is actually something I've missed during the quarantine of this pandemic, which is you have conversations like at dinner parties or at the post office. I had one the other day. It was a new thing. I hadn't had one for a year. And I just feel like I've missed the kind of fertilization that you get from talking to a lot of other people yeah yeah and talking over a um you know because all of like for example for my work talking all of my meetings are via teams or yeah. zoom or whatever and it's just it's not the same it it's is not. totally not the same it's not at all i regret to say that we're sort of running on time so can't, we should do recommendations but i could chat about this for a very long time <laughs> um, so mom do you want to go with your whatever new york times article you've got this week it's not the new york times surprise okay it is something that i found in smithsonian magazine mm -hmm. and uh 175 years ago, the Arts and Industries uh, building opened, and it's been closed for the last two years. It opened, and it, uh, it was in conjunction the, in 1881 with the inaugural ball for John Garfield. I'm sure you remember him, uh, one of our presidents. And in the very front, huge atrium hall, they had a thing called uh, the Statue of America, and it was a woman, and in her upraised hand, she had an electric light bulb. It was the first time that an electric light bulb had been seen in the District of Columbia. It was nine months after Edison had patented it, and it was a sensation. And it was supposed to represent the future. So they've had the building closed, and they're about to reopen it. And in the front atrium, what they've got planned is a sculpture 
which is uh, an artificial intelligence connected sculpture. And when people come in, they're supposed to say a word which represents their feeling about the future. And this uh, sculpture will translate that into light and transmit it through this whole series of of branches so that the whole atrium uh, will see it and it'll it'll move. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I am going to send you the link to the article. Great. Um, Tina, what's your recommendation? So a recommendation can be anything, anything right? A product, a person, a book, a thought, a TV show, a movie. Um, I am going to recommend a product, actually. Um, it's something that I've recently discovered, and I cannot remember um, where I found this, but it is a watercolor graphite by Artgraph, um, and it may have been something that's literally been out for years, but it was new to me. And, you know, because I've historically used Stabilo All Pencils a lot, um, which I still love. And this has kind of the same effect, but it's in a little metal, like, palette type of thing. And I'm obsessed. I use this on everything right now. I use so it, it to... looks like, like a watercolor pan? Yeah, it looks like a watercolor pan. It's bigger than a normal watercolor pan. But it's filled with graphite, watercolor graphite, and it's by Art Graph. But it's great to add like shadowing or depth around a collage piece, or you can really wet it up and you know splatter it on a page. But I'm obsessed with this thing. I use it almost on every single page anymore. Sounds like something I'm gonna have to add to my cart. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I can't, I think maybe, maybe it was in a creative jumpstart video from earlier this year that someone shared it. I, mm -hmm. That's the only thing I can think of because it's been recent. Is it an inky black? Um, no, it's not, it's not super dark and, and black. It's very, very watercolory, but it's enough for if you like shadowing, um, it's it definitely you could really add a lot of the graphite to your paintbrush to make it a little bit deeper but i like that very tonal look of it cool uh so my recommendation this week is uh a video from youtube called where are all the bob ross paintings and I uh, never wondered about this question, but now I actually have an answer to it, which is apparently if you want to buy a Bob Ross painting, one of the thousands of paintings he made during his time on uh, air, you cannot. You cannot buy a Bob Ross painting. And the reason is they are all in a warehouse. And the woman who discovered him, her family basically runs like a Bob Ross company. Uh, and anyway, it's just a really interesting video sort of about Bob Ross, about these people, about where the paintings came from, about why Bob Ross is, is be so popular now. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's a good watch. That's very interesting. I guess I never thought about his paintings, but yeah, I could see where they would be very sought after. 
Yeah. People want Bob Ross paintings. Uh-huh. So, Tina, if people are looking to connect with you online, where can they find you? Um, you can find me primarily on Instagram at a dog's life one three, um, or on Facebook. Um, then I do have a YouTube channel, but I don't post a lot on it. So mostly Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then in my Etsy store, my Etsy store name is frog dog studio, all one word. Um, and that's pretty much the the main places you'd find me. Great. And mom, do you have anything you'd like to add before we sign off? No, but I have found this a very stimulating discussion. So thank you both. <laughs> me too. Hello. Yeah, this was very enjoyable. Like I said, you guys got me thinking. That's I got all this good. stuff I got to think about. <laughs> that's always what we say at the beginning of the podcast is that we want the podcast to stimulate your imagination. Yep. So you can find me at juliebalzer.com or on Instagram as Balzer Designs. And if you'd like to take a class with me or sign up for private coaching, I'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to help the show, you can leave a review, mention us on social media, or tell a friend because all of those things help other people find the show and we appreciate it. So thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. Bye.